there. Welcome to another Dish Cast. The lungs are slowly improving. I can breathe. I'm wearing a mask outside, but for the pollen. Anyway, I, I don't know how and why I've never met Douglas Murray, but you haven't and just did. And under terrible circumstances, because he's come to Washington and agreed to participate in the spectacle of the White House Correspondents Day. He was a guest of Fox at the Nerd Prom. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> How I, did you love this entry into Washington social life? I loathed it. and But I suppose everyone should go once if they can, maybe, to confirm pre-existing prejudices. Now, I am, I mean, I'd heard at White House Correspondents Dinner, obviously, and I come, and listeners can tell from my accent, from a different country and different different tradition and it, what struck me about the event last night was that not only it was exactly what i feared but precisely what i feared which was a smug fest american journalists take themselves so differently as a species than british journalists you know british journalists enjoy hackery you know being a hack churning out words and you know and, and it's an important role no doubt but not this kind of austere guardian of the flame of democracy <laughs> sort of thing. And and I'm afraid the White House Correspondents' Dinner was packed clearly with people who believe that they are the most important thing in the democracy and also Kardashians, it should be said. Who... No, the Kardashians are the main hmm. attraction because uh, the great formula of the WHCD, of Nerdprom, is that the nerds of Washington get to meet the stars of Hollywood. The mm. stars of Hollywood get to feel smarter somehow, mm. clued in. Well, we, and and yes. the ugly nerds that never got taken to the right. prom before suddenly feel glamorous. Well, we had one of the Kardashians uh, is dating the very ugly guy from Saturday Night Live that no one watches. Oh, Pete and Davidson, the guy with it. the tattoos? Exactly. Yeah. And, and they were the absolute centerpiece of the event. Really? I mean, everybody was trying to get a photograph with them. Yeah. So I thought that ideas and journalism rather took a back seat. <laughs> <laughs> it's preposterous. It, it's had a, I think it's the one thing, one moment it mattered hmm. was when Obama gave a really, I mean, he gave amazingly funny and smart. Yeah, he, he could be very funny. So good at, what, at that stuff. I mean, he had great young writers. Hmm. But when he, when Trump was in the audience. Oh, yeah. And he just mercilessly mm-hmm. mocked. Mm. Donald J. Trump. And Donald mm. J. Trump had to sit there in the middle of all these people he hated mm. and take it. I, I, and some part of me thinks that was the moment Donald J. Trump yes. decided to be president out of pure vengeance. Yes, that's right. There was actually one almost funny moment last night when somebody made reference to that and said they, that Trump that day was sitting at table, whatever it is, 21, and said, can we have the light of table 21? Whatever I say about you at that table, please don't run for president. Yes. That's a good line. Yeah, that, was, that wasn't bad. But the, the president's scriptwriters were atrocious, unbelievably unfunny speech. <laughs> and the only person who was less funny was Trevor Noah, who, who made President Biden look like the sharpest, wittiest stand-up comic. <laughs> <laughs> so, but yeah. as you know, it's always interesting to see these things in the flesh. It might, it's, like, it's like countries that people think there's nothing interesting about. I always say, well, it's worth going once. You know, because everywhere is interesting in a way. You know. Anthropologically, it's fascinating. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And of course, there's an element of if you live in Washington, this is it, really. If you, you want right. some sense of 
glamour. And let's remember that mm. Christopher Hitchens was the orchestrator of the after the White House correspondence in a party, yeah. which became the critical after party. Michael Kelly really started it by first bringing a, a celebrity there. So, you know, everyone's kind of implicit, complicit. I, I, mm. I, I went for many years. I mean, you, you kind of have to go if, you're, if you run a magazine or you're, right, because you have, to, you have to fellate the, uh, the advertisers, yeah. um, which is excruciating. Yeah. If you've ever spent the evening next to a Raytheon executive. And they're it, so easy to, to lose. <laughs> <laughs> Every now and again, it's really fun. They put you like, Tina Brown mischievously put me, sat me next to Aaron Schock. The young, obviously gay, but still closeted uh, Republican oh, with the with the yes. with the with the Abercrombie and Fitch body, right. a sort of proto Madison. Right. <laughs> anyway, yes. we haven't introduced. I haven't even yeah. introduced you to no. people. So Douglas Murray is a British writer and commentator. Writes mainly for the Spectator. He kind of became rather famous with his first book, The Strange Death of Europe, which is highly controversial. Well, let me okay, back well, you maybe, up maybe right there. You, you tell me your biography. Don't let me. No, no, no. Um, my first book w was on a very different bailiwick, which came out during my time at Oxford. And it was a biography of Lord Alfred Douglas, the love right. of Oscar Wilde. So that was my, I've actually written seven books, but only three of them have deeply disturbed the bestseller lists. So <laughs> I have to put up with people saying three books when was I say seven and I, I grit my teeth and I. No, the. Wasn't, isn't Bosey. This, by the way, is if you don't know, is, was Oscar Wilde's young lover, one of the most hideous people you'd ever lived. Or um, is that just no, my... I think that's not fair. But okay. I mean, without getting into it, he he because I dealt I dealt with him twenty two years ago. I was I knew the people who knew him still, and so I, there was a lot of I like those bits of history which have almost got lost and you can find right. again. And they were very defensive of him, and and I and I learned and I learned stuff about him that wasn't known, and ended up writing his biography in my gap year before going up to university. And, um, How old were you when you wrote that book? Eighteen. Jesus Lord. I know. Uh, Christopher Hitchens, who you just mentioned, reviewed it for the Atlantic, I think, and said that it was, well, praised it, but said that it was very disturbing that somebody who twenty should be publishing this book. So yeah. that was how we first got in contact. But no, um, so and that was and that was brought up by Tina Brown at the ill-fated Miramax Books, Talk Magazine. Remember that? Oh God, yes. And so that was that was my first book and. And then, as as you as you, well as you well know, what tends to happen in publishing is if you do something and it goes well once, they want you to repeat the trick ad nauseum. And I didn't want to do that. I didn't have another subject of biography in my head. And to my mind, for biographies, you need to have a very ambivalent attitude towards the subject. You can't be a total fanboy of them, but nor can you hate them. You've got to sort of find them difficult and want to un understand them in, if you can. And I just didn't find I didn't have another subject like that. And besides, by that point, I was interested in politics. And and so it was some years till I wrote my next book. And that was because I was sort of retraining, really, and starting starting out again, realizing that although my first love was literature, my my sort of duty in a way was to also become immersed in politics. And that sounds like Hitchens at the same time. Actually, Well, funnily yeah. enough, that that was one of the things that then made us become friends was was that we had the same instinct on that. Was it? We were both, both annoyed to be having to write about politics, right? Um, you know, you sort of desperately want to write about things. Well, Christopher had this moment that his whole life was beginning over. He was going to write literary criticism. That, yes, you know, that's right. That he was going to focus on, and he's actually, in some respects, 
He's a, who's a, a marvelous critic. It's probably oh, he's best, a beautiful critic. His yes. best writing is actually literary criticism, and his, he yes. had read everything. Yes, his his essay on my first book is in his one of his best books, I think, Unacknowledged Legislators. It's it's, it's in there. I can't remember what the title is, Lord, Lord Trouble or something. So let me yeah. take you back a little bit further. Then you're writing a biography of Bosey at the age of eighteen. Hmm. Where did you Where did you grow up? I grew up in London, and I'm a scholarship boy of that type that I think probably is less and less common, sadly, because in both Britain and America, we sort of quite busily kick away what ladders that exist in our societies in the belief that if you kick away ladders, the whole board will become fairer. Well, I, I, I lived that myself. I'm a little older than you, but I was a scholarship boy at a grammar school that was abolished while I was there. Right. So I witnessed... And in fact, my school, rather than succumb to it, went independent and started charging fees. So it became a private school. But to witness that was completely radicalizing. Mm. Yes. How did it radicalize you? I was in, I I, I could not understand a philosophy that would, this institution, the year I went up there, public school, you didn't have to pay anything. It had an IQ test, an 11 plus test to get Mm -hmm. in. And it got more kids to Oxford and Cambridge that year than any other state school. <laughs> that's why it had to be shut down. <laughs> yes, that's and right. That's right. The idea that you would cut off yeah. a successful yeah. institution that brought people from all backgrounds. Yeah. Like, and, and people know this, but in my own class of 30 was Keir Starmer right next to me. Oh, yes. So these people, and, uh, and in the same class of 30, there was also Fat Boy Slim. Wow. In that same class, there's Lord Cooper. Probably you know him, Andrew yeah. Cooper, yeah, uh, yeah, of course. the pollster. Yeah. All all boys together in a single class of 30. Yeah. And very different, pretty rough at times because people's backgrounds varied. Sure. Um, and they were all boys, so it was kind of, yeah. it was it was a rugby playing, you have to fight to survive kind of school. <laughs> I loved it. I absolutely bloody loved it. But when it was destroyed in the name of equality, I became a conservative. Mm. That was yes. the one. Here's what made me concerned: that, and and also the destruction of the woodlands around where I grew up for, mm-hmm. for yeah. new housing. So I had yes. this. I had a pincer movement of socialism on one hand and capitalism on the other. I didn't like yes. the logic of either. I yes. thought they were violating some core values, and that's how I started to move slowly. I mean, I went. I you know I don't want to go through all again, but I I I, I started with Orwell actually. Coming up for air is a mm. wonderful novel which has this description. He Orwell also had this passion for the English countryside and and yeah. and, and the the details of English life yeah. and a love of English culture. And this is where it was quite common for intellectuals. No, no, that's not true. <laughs> Maybe not for intellectuals, but. It, there's a long history of intellectuals loving their countries, and yes. and 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 someone like Orwell could commit to socialism as an ideology, mm. yes, but come from it from an entirely deeply patriotic, yes, sense. And I mean patriotic, not nationalistic. Well, well patri- patriotism in those days didn't have to be something of the right, uh, no. at all. I mean, the, the, the clearest example I know in my life is that somebody who also became a great influence on me and a great early encourager was the now late philosopher Roger Scruton. And Roger, although 
the most conservative person imaginable. His father was a socialist and his father and he actually only in the end had common cause on one thing, which was the preservation of the town in which they lived or grown up, the countryside around and so on. His father's version of left wingness was completely imbued with conservation. You know, he didn't want to tear down the local town and build up glass and steel monstrosities, let alone see the countryside built over. So I don't know, I don't know exactly when, but it's an extremely bad development that, 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 that people should end up associating things like, you know, patriotic feeling, pride or, or love of one's country as being somehow the preserve of any particular ideological side. And in America, when I think of the last two really successful presidents who were Democrats, mm. the first was Bill Clinton, who, whatever his flaws, was from red America. He was, yeah. <laughs> and, you know, one of the things he always used to say is there's nothing wrong with America that can't be fixed by what is right in America. Mm. Another mm. really nice balance. Yes. Similarly, Obama never stopped praising the country mm. for how it made someone like him possible. Yes, yes. He didn't not add that there were other structural questions, but both those successful Democrats yeah. celebrated America. Well, and it, it's, and I mean, in both cases, it's it's not just politically sensible to do so, because perhaps we will come on to, you know, it's, it's mad to war on, on the origins of the country you're trying to appeal to, because maybe a lot of people of all political types do want to have the right to feel a type of pride and pleasure in their country and its history and their surroundings and all that but also because it's so obvious isn't it it's a, it's the greatest refutation that that much like Orwell's point about Gandhi you know nobody would have heard of him if he'd have been in any empire other than the British Empire because he'd have been disappeared and dead so it's the case that if America was the country that people now talk about as being President Obama would not have been there for two terms so there's a sort of or, or obvious... for that matter the waves of immigration that we see yeah. would not happen well that's Yes. I mean, that goes back to the, the question we started with, which I mean, which is, f for me, one of the drives that made me political was realizing that the cultural things I loved must, by necessity, end up being defended politically as well. In other words, you couldn't just engage in culture and enjoying culture because everything was being affected by politics. Perhaps it always is. Perhaps there, is, but perhaps there was no time when culture and politics were totally you know, separate uh, magisteria. But in our own day in particular, and I write about it a lot in, in, in The War in the West, but absolutely everything comes in for this assault on the same political level. And and so, you know, much as I always hoped that I could engage in literary criticism for most of my life, or at least read books and write about them, and maybe write novels or whatever, in the end I discovered you, I couldn't afford myself that luxury in a way. Well, it seems to me the point there is that culture and politics being separate is a very strange combination mm. in human history. Yes, yes. And to create the space yeah. for culture to exist independently of politics yes. is itself a political act. Absolutely. This, yeah. is, this is, I mean, in the classical sense, a liberal society, mm -hmm, which, which mm -hmm. does not want the government to be everywhere. Mm. Doesn't want, doesn't, you don't want to walk down the street and be reminded of the, the government leader. You don't want to go to a play and be bombarded with political messages. You yes, don't want to go right. to a gallery. I think one of the things that's happening and why there is a revolt in some ways among lots of people is like everywhere. I a friend of mine just came from England, went to Broadway. He said, 
Every single play is lecturing me about oh, white don't. supremacy. Everything. You can't, there's nothing there that you can enjoy or, or be diverting to some kind of other world. I know. The, the, uh, you know I'm based in New York these days. And Jordan and Tammy Peterson, who are great friends, come through New York every you know, few months or so. And we always go to several shows together, you know, we'll go to the opera and then a show, whatever. And the last time they were in town, you know, we... <laughs> We had exactly this. We end up going to this David Burns show called American Utopia in an afternoon. We were and we we're looking forward to it. I didn't know anything. That was kind of my before my era, music-wise. But everything was so great, and the performers and they were still so talented. And everything was going so well. And then suddenly, Burns said, "You know, I've got to acknowledge my sins as a white man, and that, and I've got to, you know, work. I've got to do the work." And this next song, I've asked the writer if she'd allow me to perform it being a white male. And she said, yes, this song's for everyone. And it was this song, like, say their name, say their name. And everyone in the, in the theater was, you know, being told to shout out George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and all this. And I just, I feel, I feel like I need to lie down after that. I just, I feel so, you know, that, that overused word of the, the I feel tired. I really feel tired after this. And I said to Jordan afterwards, I just, I just feel like I can never escape this crap wherever I go, you know. And that, to me, is an is a is a very driving force. That keep it out of the places we we should be allowed to feel reverence in. Still, you know, like if I were to go to a church, don't pack the prayers with political messaging. If I were to go to an art gallery, don't tell me what to think, you know. And if I go to a concert, don't lecture me, and someone once said that the, the, the extent you could work out what exactly the philosophy of Leo Strauss was, that one way to sum it up was that he wanted to keep, he wanted to make the world safe for philosophy to be practiced. And in a way, it's a, it may sound sort of pretentious, but in a way, I would, I, I'd be content if, if it was possible to help the world be more capable of keeping politics out of art and culture and meaning. You know, it's, it's, you have a line, have somewhere in our lives where the same goddamn boring claims and assertions are not made and where we can live for a bit. But that's a very liberal, I mean, in the old sense, liberal sure. assertion. Of course, for the religious fanatic, every single piece of culture has yes. to be subsumed to the religious orthodoxy. Yeah. And when an orthodoxy like this strikes in a secular society, it's kind of remarkable how quickly the need for total orthodoxy begins because once it becomes unquestionable and what was strange about it because i want to talk about the years 2015 to 2020 mm. a really remarkable period Amazing. and i don't i'm not sure we've quite <laughs> absorbed it yet yes but i noticed it happening it came from it came up yes. from below mm -hmm. uh Large numbers of interns suddenly arrived in news organizations and were <laughs> determined to root mm -hmm. out white supremacy in there mm -hmm. in the copy editing department. <laughs> uh, it's where it's most oh, right. It's obviously disgusting. The Oxford comma imposition yeah. is uh, yeah. clearly imperialistic. If the KKK are to meet anywhere, it's in those places. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and so you then began to have these like sensitivity readers. All oh, this stuff started happening, and yeah. you notice, and you also notice that the 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 the, the older kind of liberal types, which is kind of slack-jawed and paralyzed mm, uh, because mm. suddenly they were being told they can't continue yes. the way they had because if they did, they were self-evidently bigots. Yes. Well, I, I mean, there's several reasons it happened. 
one I did I wrote about it obviously in my last book as well, The Madness of Crowds. There, there was the assertion of an ideology into the system very, very fast. And I think that people who were above the sort of generation most eager to push this really didn't know what came and hit them and what the nature of it was. They all had to learn new terms like intersectionality very fast. They, uh, there, there was an extent in terms of history, at any rate, um, it's a longer point, but in terms of history, there was a narrative of our quite recent past that itself had been forgotten um, or the defense of it had been forgotten because we hadn't litigated again for some time. So the argument was weak. So, And then there was the fact that the people coming in with their new ideology were willing to use the most damaging terms of the time. I mean, actually, something that Roger Scruton and I discussed quite a bit at the end of his life was what it means for the public sphere when the most damaging allegations and accusations that can be leveled up against any person are both unprovable and impossible to disprove. You know, if 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 you say I am a killer of children, I can sue the hell out of you and win because I can prove that I'm not a killer of children. If you accuse me of racism, and people say, why don't you sue? Well, how do you disprove or prove this allegation? I mean, in some cases, very few cases, you can kind of prove that someone's just an out-and-out -out racist because they are and they love it. But, but most of the time, it's just an incredibly serious and unpleasant and ugly accusation, which you don't have to provide evidence for. It can be in the eye of the beholder, and the person who it's leveled against cannot defend themselves against. So... These accusations, and there are others, obviously, transphobe, you know, homophobe and others, again, all of which were terms we might recognize, but they started to be leveled everywhere and maliciously and for political advantage. And so it's the grabbing of the, 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 the hardest weapons of the age and the beating of people with them or the threatened beating of people with them. And what I, what I now recognize has happened is something similar to how you herd a flock of sheep. Bear with me for a second, in case you're not an agriculture expert. <laughs> okay, I'm not either, but I can fake it. Here, if you ever watch a, a farmer trying to round up sheep with a sheepdog, it's a very beautiful art form. What does the sheepdog do? It, it runs to the edges of the herd and it nips. And the herd learns how to run, depending on the furthest flanks of the herd having been bitten. Well, that's what's happened to our societies. Mm. The flanks of our society have been bitten. Actually, in this case, it's not a friendly nip from a, a sheepdog. It's a, a thwack a, a, across your lower legs, reputationally speaking. And everyone else learns from it, you know. One partner at a firm says that they think that the implicit bias training is nonsense, as it is. And uh, he has to leave the company. Now, what what is that? The most serious case of all time, the most appalling sub story, of course not. But it's 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 a hit against the the edge of the herd. When you remember the McCarthy era, mm. the word communist was used in a similar fashion mm. from the other side. Yes, yes. And again, how could they say they're not a communist? They may have lots of socialist ideas. They, mm. There was now. There was a subset of them who were actual communist spies, sure. and that was true. Of, always a problem. With always a problem yeah. with that. But there are also real racists. There are in the anti CRT or anti the, the people, yeah. in this. and so so it's not like uh, it's nothing, but it is this very American moral panic thing. And what you find also, of course, is that as you try to grapple with it, you realize, Jesus, and I think this is what a lot of us felt. I can't win.
I can't win. I'm mm. just going to be accused of something I can't defend myself from. And so what happens, mm. I think, in due course is that they, people on the other side come up with terms that are equally unable to be defended against. So what would they be? Groomer. Oh, yes. That's, a, that's an interesting development, isn't it? Yes, yes. yes. Groomer is a word mm. that has come out of the, the, the right now. To define, to describe anybody who favors teaching children about critical queer theory or gender theory mm. in, in, in the terms of picture books that says yes. to children, you know, at three, you can be a boy or a girl mm. or both or neither or something else entirely. You could also be an alien. Yes. But, and the way to, the, you could say this is not, this is inappropriate. There are different age groups necessary. And that also this is before you've even told kids there are boys and girls, you've told mm. them there aren't boys and girls. So you're mm. going to completely confuse yes. these children. But they're not trying to rape the kids. No, it's clearly the same trick being played back, isn't it? Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. Yes, this is a very recent development, this one. I, I think that it has some it has some strategic sense behind it, yeah. although it's a moral mistake. The strategic sense is, okay, you live, level a highly damaging accusation against me with impunity, I will do the same back to you. And probably the only thing in society worse than being a racist is being a child abuser. And so it's in some ways it's a sensible play to make. I've actually... Especially I've, around the gay subject because that has also yeah i mean what was done in the lavender scare yes in this city particularly yeah. jamie crutchick has a really fascinating book Excellent coming out about book. It. i'm reading it at the moment by the way it's uh, fantastic yes yeah, yeah. and it's about time people talked about the gay rights movement and also some of the extraordinary heroes that existed before 1969 yes where so much of the the grunt work was done before yeah. trans women of color created the gay rights movement in 1969. <laughs> but yes, this, I mean, this, I, I, I hypothesized some time ago about the possibility that precisely this tactic could be used. I think I said it once to Sam Harris on a podcast. I said, look, you know, imagine if we did the same thing back. Imagine if like, when Ben Affleck said Sam was racist, Sam had said, well, it's not my fault you like fucking kids, you know, and then Ben Affleck would what? And you go, oh, I thought we were just all throwing around insincere accusations to try to damage you. Now, as it happens, I so I do. I, I, I thought this some years ago, I first raised this and I have thought for a while it's an obvious playback with one problem, as I say, firstly, that well, several problems. One is, is again, it's actually provable, as a, unlike racism and therefore merely defamatory. Unlikely to lead you to the courts on the defensive side, which is not good. Uh, the second reason is, 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 of course, is that it, it, it could be effective, but you you become the thing you hate. Right. You know, and that is, we all know that is actually a debate on the American right that's very feverish at the moment. I know. Is, should we actually, you, if, if and, and now the left will play it, play it back, if we see really ugly tools lying around on the floor waiting to be used, should we be pussy whipped forever or should we stop being pussies and pick up some of those tools and hurt, yes. and hurt them back? And of course, you know, the problem with it is it's the same thing why I always say, you know, in the end, there's a reason why you just shouldn't tell lies, even for short-term gain, and that's that you become a liar and you become the thing that you hate and you set out not to be. You know, you try to tackle the void and become part of the void. In this book, The War on the West, which I highly recommend, it's a it's a, a really helpful narrative mm. of what's happened. I mean, as I said, I it made me feel more sane. It's there are several bits of it that are new to me, but its strength is just setting the terrain. 
and doing so in a way in which makes a lot of us feel less insane. Mm. Like, oh, yes, yes, this has happened. But the defense of the West is also in this position, which is that mm. you go out of your way when you defend the West to say the thing that actually distinguishes the West is its openness to others. Yes, absolutely. And that is a value worth defending. So in yes. fact, when you're defending the West, you're not just defending an identity. Mm. You're defending an idea. Yes. And yes, that idea has been wrapped up in the identities and communities and cultures of Western Europe and mm. America, which have been predominantly white, predominantly white simply yes. by virtue of that's where... Yes. That's, like, that's, like Africa that's, is predominantly black. Yes, there nothing. isn't much sun in yes. Germany. But it doesn't mean that any of these... Mm. ideas somehow racially constructed. And when I see, in, for example, the way in which the left, the modern left, has attempted, for example, to re-describe Enlightenment figures as essentially racist, yeah. and thereby to do to Locke and Hume, for example, what they do essentially to people today, which yes. is, except these people obviously can't fight back. And what mm. they do is by finding tiny little things, yeah. Yeah, attempt to distract from the yes. whole, and 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 the question is, where does this come from? This this terrible sense that this system, the West, that is obviously has been extraordinarily successful, mm. has so much wealth, yes, has so much prosperity, has so much diversity, is somehow uniquely morally problematic in the world. First of all, the the issue of the West being open and receptive is a point that cannot be made enough because people have been told the opposite. One of the figures I glancingly critique in the book is Edward Said, who every first year undergraduate in almost every discipline has heard of for his very unremarkable insight on Orientalism, which is that people from Europe went to the Orient and looked at it through European eyes. Well, what eyes were they meant to look at it through? Chinese eyes, <laughs> Japanese eyes, you know, Aboriginal and Australian eyes. And but this this always ignores the fact that actually the fact that they went at all is of some significance. The late George Steiner once said that he could never get out of his head the haunting fact that the boats only then went out in one direction. It yeah. was the Europeans who went out into the world to find it. And of course, now we know the, the the things that are said to be bad about that, some of which were bad. But there was also clearly a Western, as we would call it, curiosity about the world. We wanted to know. There are no cases that I know of of Indian scholars, rich and impressive and important a culture that India has provided, or cultures, you should say, of Indians traveling to Western Europe and rediscovering lost languages of Europe. You know, it was European scholars who went to India and did this, a anthropologists and etymologists and others. And, and now this is looked at only in this light of stealing, as if all of Western art and Western culture, Western ideas was about stealing. And I mean, as somebody who is steeped in this stuff, I know this in my bones to be a lie when people discovered other traditions in from Europe, they were so amazed by them and wanted to understand them. And I mean, all the writing and philosophy and art of the West is, is not about going and saying they have a thing and I want to take it, let, let alone diminish it, which is now in the terms of cultural appropriation, how this is described. 
but but rather here is this extraordinary thing and I would love to be able to build this into my own art and, and, and life. And, and again, that is an uncommon thing in any tradition. The Western tradition has been amazingly absorbent. It's curious. It's, it, 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 it travels the world to try to find out ideas and discover things. And that seems to me to be a, a terrific and heroic and, and human narrative. And and I and the rewriting of that in, for instance, the terms of cultural appropriation, as I mentioned in the book, the whole the whole way in which you if you ever see the way people talk about cultural appropriation, they only ever give the silliest, most insignificant cases like braiding of hair, you know, things like that. They don't talk about Messiaen's absorption of Indian rhythm. Right. Why? Because they don't know about it. They don't know about Indian rhythm, nor do they know about Messiaen. If they talk about wearing a particular costume at Halloween, it's because they don't know what Debussy learned from abroad. They don't know what the great French painters of the 19th century discovered in Africa. They don't know it. And if or they, what, what Britain found in Bali. Or what Britain found in Bali. And, and, and Britain is terrible. Britain is white, super uptight composer in England somehow is open up to the cultural dynamics and 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 rhythms and, and music of Bali. Yes. And I, then comes back and wants to. Yes. He's not stealing it. He wants to celebrate. Yes. He wants to show it, how you know, the Messian was also out there listening to bird song. For exactly. Fuck's sake. I mean, this just, is, this maybe is, there's something out there I don't know and understand. And and and, and somehow, as I say, the, the simple silly examples, Halloween costumes and I think Halloween should just be banned in America. <laughs> Such a stupid festival, it anyway. And, and making it into this cultural appropriation, you know, they don't actually take into, into account how would the arts or, or philosophy operate if we sectioned ourselves off? Would we want to practice anything in which that was the case? I would say no, absolutely not. It's the essence of it. It's the essence of thought that you're open-minded and you try to discover and that people don't own thoughts by dint of their racial characteristics. Right. And our age has said, no, that is the case. And that, that brings me to, to the very, very important point, if I may, about the Enlightenment. Yeah. Because something I think people haven't realized is we know about, you know, we constantly hear in certain types of news media about the attacks on religious traditions and of the West and so on. And that is a, that is a significant issue. But much less commented upon is the attack in our day on the the parallel tradition of secularism in the West, mm. the, the less lengthy, but the parallel tradition of secularism that in particular in America was so important. If you look at who has been assaulted in the last few years among the philosophers, it is the philosophers of the Enlightenment that have had the worst rap. You know, it is uh, Voltaire, whose statue is no longer able to stand in Paris. Voltaire? Voltaire. It was assaulted so many times; it's been removed, and no one, no one will admit where it is. In, in, in who assaulted the Voltaire statues? It, it's not protesters threw okay. a red paint over it, accusing him of of complicity in the slave trade. Of, of course, forgetting oh. that Voltaire also gave us in Candide one of the great, um, great humanitarian assaults on the slave trade. You know, they know one thing about people. David Hume, one footnote in David Hume's work is undoubtedly, by our modern standards, a racist 
remark. Gibran makes Kendi in his book, uh, How to Be an Anti-Racist, which should just lose the term anti from the title. Ibrahim X. Kendi's work, he, he talks about David Hume as being a racist because of this footnote. I check his own footnoting. Ibrahim X. Kendi did not stumble across his footnote through reading the complete works of Hume. He, he comes across it by reading another race huckster book by somebody talking about race in Western philosophy and racism in Western philosophy. So these people pick little bits. Why did David Hume say this? Hume scholars uh, are embarrassed by it. But why did why did Hume not spend more time talking about racism? Well, he had other things to do. Immanuel Kant, same thing. So, so one of the th thoughts I had on this, was, and John Stuart Mill even, who got pretty much everything right, as much as you can get right in history as you're going through it. Uh, John Stuart Mill gets the same treatment. And one, at one point, whilst I was researching this book, I spoke to a friend of mine. I said, I, said, I just, I can't work out why the Enlightenment philosophers in particular are getting this. And we ran through some of the options, and I say this in the book, that one possibility is that there is actually an area of our philosophical inheritance that has been not sufficiently litigated. And I say that that's possible. We could say that the Enlightenment has been taught without reference to the fact that the Enlightenment philosophers were all living at a time when slavery was still ongoing, when colonialism was still ongoing, and racist sentiment by our modern understanding was was you know commonplace to the extent that it was a significant factor you could say that and therefore this is an overdue sort of reckoning with that you you, you know there are various explanations like that you could get it sort of ignores the fact that actually quite a lot of this has been litigated in the past and as with uh, all of the modern madness of the last few years they talk as if this hasn't been gone over before you know but actually this friend helped me refine this thought actually it, it seems also to be the case that perhaps it is necessary to assault these thinkers because you've got to take reason out. You know, th in other words, this is a more targeted strike than I had realized, a more important ideological strike than I realized. And I quote in the in the War on the West, an academic in the UK, not, a, not at all a distinguished thinker, but nevertheless a very prominent one, which of course these days is not... The, is not mutually exclusive. But he says at one point, the Enlightenment is the problem. Reason is the problem. We've got to we've got to wage war on these things. And that's you quote him, but it's also in the introduction to critical race theory. Yes. It's, it's their own self-description mm. of an attack upon the Enlightenment principles. Yes. Because and again, this is this is the thing I try hard to and I think it's because I have some, you know, training in the history of ideas. So I, I have some awareness of what at the root of this is. And mm. yeah, people are aware of the surface, which sounds fine. Okay, yeah, we do want more racial diversity everywhere. And that would be great. I don't think no one really, I don't well, think well, is opposed to that as, as such. I mean, but well, if the arguments being made to do that are rooted in the notion that the West itself is inherently and inescapably racist, and mm, therefore the mm. entire system of the West must be dismantled mm. entirely mm. in order for there to be any kind of racial justice, which requires essentially the end of constitutional government, the end yes. of liberalism as we understand it. No one seems to accept that's a driving philosophical force here, Yes, that it is deeply hostile to the basic principles of liberal democracy, to the notion that individual citizens can deliberate reasonably about their mm. future common projects together yes. and can debate in the same realm because power 
always determines truth mm. as opposed to truth having some kind of objective reality that we yes. may not be able to grasp but we have to believe is there or we're completely lost. So what we end up in is pure power struggle. Right. Well, first of all, by the way, the diversity point, I, I, I'm a critic of the term diversity. I'm certainly a critic of the of the of it as a goal. I don't think that diversity in, in itself is, is, is neither a net positive nor a net negative. It's, well, it's it a way. very mixed bag. I agree, but I don't know anyone who wouldn't celebrate and rejoice. I agree. If, if America's elite was, was jammed, packed with African-Americans. People of all of backgrounds. Great well, yeah, but yeah, also yeah. just the people who haven't, haven't been as prominent like that in the past, although they have been. I mean, we talk about a country that produced W.E.G. Boys and Frederick Douglass. Yeah, I mean, yeah. we're not talking about a history where black intellectuals have had an amazing history in this yes. country. Well, that's that's another. But, but by the way, so and also the diversity thing, my point I wanted to bring this to also was that, you know, don't, let's not forget that diversity is not something that most of the world celebrates. Right. Okay, there is. If 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 the West was this committed to diversity, we really should be exporting large numbers of, for instance, French people to China, because right? they don't have very many French people in China. Now, the 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 wisecrackers say, well, you did that with colonialism. Well, that was a different matter. That was not about diversifying societies. It was about ruling them, of course, and and robbing them in some cases. But but my point is, is that we, but it's we, true we, that no one in the leadership in China is wringing their hands over the fact there aren't more African-American, African people in right. China, or that I mean, they don't have yes. a diverse enough racial balance within China. Same if you with moved, Japan. Yes, if you move to Japan, China, India, any of the other major non-Western democracies, Russia. If, you're, if, you, if, if you're not of the racial background of the majority, you will not make your way up in politics at all. You will get nowhere near, nor will your children. So I just add this caveat on the diversity point because I think we have to remember you know, what we see as being a desirable thing is, is, is not recognized as desirable in much of the rest of the world. Now, I happen to think that the openness, again, the openness is part of the Western mind. And yet, and yet it ends up being used against us because of these claims that are solely made against us. Nobody complains about the fact that, again, First Nations peoples in America, and I know I'm on very sensitive ground here, but as an outsider, let me jump around. Nobody laments the fact that First Nations peoples do not intermarry enough with other racial groups. Why? Well, we recognize they have traditions that are worth keeping and things like that. So again, when we talk about diversity in the West, it's a very specific vision of, 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 of a good life and a good society. But what I think we've fallen into, among other things, is a version of what, what, what you'll know, Andrew, what was known as, in the past as Moynihan's Law, and Daniel Patrick Moynihan's Law about human rights violations. You remember that one? That, 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 that the number of claims of human rights violations in a country could reliably be said to be in exactly inverse proportion to the number of human rights violations in a country. You, know, you hear a lot about human rights violations in Britain or America because that's where we care about whether or not a lesbian couple can get IVF on the state or whether their insurance programs pay for it. And so we hear about these human rights violations. We, we don't hear much about human rights violations from within Myanmar or Hong Kong even these days because the human rights aren't cared about and you don't hear about the people who are suffering from them. And there's, this is a very, very important point. And I think that Moynihan's law applies also to racism because the, the follow-on point from Moynihan's law was 
as a result of this, an, an ill-educated or uninformed person could form the idea that the place where most of the human rights claims were being made from was the worst place. And that is the case in a modern West about racism. We hear so much about racism in the modern West, and I give examples of the sorts of banal, stupid, idiotic, made-up things that constitute alleged racism. This isn't to say there is no, no racism, but the, the level of the bar of it is in such a curious place now. And yet, if the West was racist, in the way that, say, modern China as run by the Chinese Communist Party is undoubtedly racist, then you wouldn't hear these claims. We wouldn't get people making these assertions on a daily, hourly basis. Nobody would care when you said that you were worried about somebody else's headdress on Halloween. They wouldn't give a shit. Why would they mind? And the result of this is that a new generation have come up, this comes back to this point about the sort of radicalized young, who, who have a misunderstanding, and, and that's to put it politely, a complete misreading of the society that they are in. The idea that we live in a white supremacist society or a society that is dominated by white supremacy is so fantastical and provably not the case. And yet, People make that assertion every day in America about America. If America was that, you wouldn't get to make the assertion. You'd be dead, imprisoned, or shut up. Or or you wouldn't have 86% of your immigrants as non-white, which is just a bizarre thing for a white supremacist country yes. to do, to be actually legally engaged in the right. diversifi racial diversification of its own country, which it passed in 1965. Yes, but not exactly yes. a high point. Well, and again, but but so I look around me and I think, Jesus, this is the most diverse country on earth. Mm. I mean, in, I use that word diverse. Isn't yeah. it? It's the one thing you can, if someone out of any other country yes. on earth yeah. walk yeah. down the streets of America, they'd be like, Jesus, yeah. this is the most multicultural, Absolutely. multiracial society I've ever come across. In fact, you could go through history and ask yourself, has there ever been a mm. that enables yes. this so much of difference and mutual mm. toleration? And I don't think you can no, find one. There isn't. There no. occasionally there are city states or mm -hmm. uh, places which are, or empires that mm. contain a variety, but no republics that embrace this difference. So the question is, you can look at this and you could say, great. And you can have two responses, I think. One is that, but still look at the racial imbalance in terms of wealth and so on and so forth. And I think you could say, yeah, we've got work to do. How do we solve that? What are the specific reasons for this happening? How can we address that? That's a perfectly legitimate and important discussion to have. On the other hand, and that's what part of the West is, self-criticism is vital. We're yes, not against self-criticism. Yeah. It's important. I want to shut down no scholarship, no debate. But <laughs> at the same time, there is also this sense. There is something uniquely evil here mm. that, that somehow this place is a source of trouble for the world, that it's, it's a grotesque experiment, mm. that it's really about the suppression or oppression of certain peoples, and yet I look around me and I don't see that. I was, you know, I talked to John Stewart about this, and I'm like, I'm an American, and I, 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 I the reason I came here is because I love this vibrant. It's it's unique on Earth. Yeah. And he's like, well, well, you're not living in the same fucking country as I am, and I'm like, well, I am actually. Maybe, yeah. just maybe, an immigrant sees it more clearly than you do. Oh, that's certainly possible. Because that's you have become possible. trapped in this old family struggle. Yes. That is increasingly irrelevant because, in fact. 
the racial dynamics and picture of America is so much more complex now than it was ever before. But where does this come from? Where well, does this desire, this this oikophobia, this yeah. this this desire to see? And you you I think in a, I think by the best passage of this book, the best chapter or interlude is what Nietzsche called ressentiment. Yes. Now you and which does seem to me to be absolutely endemic yes. today. Every yes. even personally, mm. politically, culturally. That's right. Explain to me what Nietzsche, you you yeah. understand Nietzsche yeah. to be saying when he uses this term ressentiment. Um, first of all, yes. Uh, let me just add one other thing to your 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 comments on on uh, the, well, the nature of American society and specifically that sort of allegation that it is a white supremacist society and so on. There are disparities in 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 median house, household earnings and indeed median household asset worth in America, and there is a disparity between Black Americans and white Americans. Is the sole explanation for this racism? demonstrably not. How can we demonstrate that it's not? Because Asian Americans outperform white Americans. If America was a white supremacist society, do these people have any explanation as to how that came about? Is the white supremacist society so busy trying to keep black Americans down that the Asians nipped around the side and, and came out on top and the white supremacists, God damn, we've been uh, outflanked from, by the Asians on the other side and they're trying to keep the Asians down. No, obviously not. <laughs> obviously not. But you make that point, Douglas, and they go Bananas. bananas. And, and hate this. You will never see a story about Asians in the New York Times, which doesn't say the model minority myth. That in right. fact, the argument is that they're just self selected. The people immigrated here because they happen to be smart. And it has nothing to do with culture, nothing to do with family structure. It's just because they are white adjacent and therefore treated differently. And as you know, there's another comeback that Nigerian immigrants to the United States outperform. And they outperform American blacks. And that is... But that could be an argument that, in fact, African-Americans have been subjected uniquely to a historical experience that new Nigerian immigrants who were often smart and self-motivated and immigrate themselves have not. Well, in other words, it just... But that, to me, suggests that the, que- the issue is not whether white people are coming up against black-looking people and saying, ooh, it is mm. that there are some structural issues that, that have emerged in mm. African-American society which are right. impeding... And success. Well, the point. But the minute you bring up any of those things, family, yeah. culture, you're told you're a racist. Right. And the, the subject is shut down. And unfortunately, as a result, any endemic problems will remain. Because if you decide that the answer to everything is racism, if you think that every problem is a unipolar problem, then I'm afraid that none of this will be solved. There is no way that black households will be able to be raised up out of the economic situation they are in if you decide that the answer to everything is racism. Black attainment levels, uh, financial attainment levels, are clearly a multidimensional problem. And it is such a disservice to the people in these communities as well as outside of them to pretend that like everything else in the modern American context, there is a single explanation, which is racism. Let me come to a second point from that, which is the misunderstanding of the world that we see it, and this comes back to your, your John Stewart point, I think this is particularly acute in people in, their, in that generation who is, you know, coming through the sort of what we might think of as being the hellish people in the entry world, the publishing world, not to sound too parochial, but the people who say, you know, sensitivity readers and all that. These people have actually forgotten recent history. I'm, I'm in my early 40s. I grew up in Britain, as you did. The evening news on the BBC was read by a black woman. Moira Stewart. The evening news on the on the third channel was read by a black man, uh, Trevor MacDonald. 
the the main children's program on the BBC was presented by a now I realize clearly gay black man Andy somebody rather the point is and and you know popular culture and television and everything else had had a lot of black representation but this is entirely unknown to people who've grown up from the 2000s onwards who've then had this impression of their society in Britain as in America sort of shoved into them that this happened sorry I've got to give this example as well Jesse Norman when Jesse Norman died recently her a bit her obituaries talked about her the fact that she was a black soprano as being the top thing as if no black soprano had succeeded in America or that people have been trying to ignore her success for years you go you're willing to take apart a highly successful career and replay it in solely racial terms. Of course, if you're a young person reading about this, the first thing you're going to think, my gosh, nobody told told you that Jesse Norman recorded Wagner with Carrie Anne in the 1970s. You know, if 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 America was such a racist society, that wouldn't have happened. But they're only told the racism. And here's the other follow-on problem from that. And this is the deep thing that we get into. It brings us to the Nietzsche point. We're in this situation where the hellish lack of education in America about America coincides with the hellish lack of information in American minds about the outside world. One of the reasons I add the context I do about slavery, about empire in the war on the West, is because there's no damn context in our time. Does one in a million Americans know that whilst the transatlantic slave trade was going on, abominable and wicked as it was, there was also a slave trade going east, an even bigger slave trade. Why do we not know about the Arab slave trade? Because the 18 million African, black Africans stolen, sold by their neighbors to the Arabs were castrated so there would be no more generations of, of black slaves in the Arab world. I think our mutual friend Ayan Hersiali first told me some years ago that when she lived in Saudi Arabia as a girl, they were referred to as Abid because they were from Somalia, they were black. Abid is uh, Abid, plural, Arabic for slave. The word still used in the Middle East for black people is slave. Um, so, And we're also talking there in terms of mass castration with genocide. Of course it was a genocide. And so when people say that the, the, the transatlantic slave trade was a genocide, it clearly wasn't. It was a wicked practice, but it clearly wasn't that, whereas the, 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 the trade east clearly was. Now, now at this point, of course, the, the wisecrackers say, well, that's just what about we know. This is what we used to call context, which in historic terms is crucial. Why do... Why does Thomas Jefferson mull as he does in a letter, which again is completely misrepresented by the the race hucks, Ibrahim X. Kendi? Why is Thomas Jefferson not able to, to, to recognize that the races are actually completely related? Because at that time, nobody knew anywhere in the world. The, the 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 debate about whether or not the races were related for, or came from the same stock 
or different stock wasn't sold for another century after Thomas Jefferson. Thomas Jefferson in his day, as I cite in the book, is extraordinarily forward-looking by modern understandings. Moles in this private letter that Kendi accuses him for racism over, that the native um, in Indians, as they said at the time, Native Americans, appear in Jefferson's uh, view to be capable of being just as educated as the white man, the Europeans, within about a generation. And Jefferson says, I suspect that in a few generations, I don't know, but I suspect within a few generations with, with black Americans, it'll be the same thing. That they'll come to the same standard. That's very forward-looking. Why didn't he know more? Because he didn't. Because nobody knew that the races were related and they didn't solve it for decades. What, what and, amazes me, I had, had a conversation with a highly educated, Ivy League educated young man who argued that racism was invented mm. by white people, of course, as like colonialism began. As, as if there is not and has not been for a couple hundred thousand years tribal sentiment yes. that is part of our DNA that inevitably will lead people to be initially skeptical of people who look different yes. than them. In and that we have a history throughout the entire world of this happening again and again and again is, and again and again and again. It's not just a, a history. It is history. Right. History is people going to a place where people don't look like them and trying to find out whether you can have a peaceful accommodation with them or not. And most of history was or not. You know, it, I'm sure you've They're seen that. They're also finding evolutionary history or not, that, 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 that they've, they're discovering more and more that these tribes that went did not commingle and they killed everyone on yes, the new island I, that they found. I'm sure you've found, as you've seen, that there's a stat in one of Stephen Pinker's books of average deaths caused by, you know, violent deaths in yes. society. And in various tribal areas, it is, you know, of the world, he, he shows that... The, that Something like 60% was the average male death by violent causes. This is compared to about 2 to 5%. I'm going to get roughly something like it's, it's single digit figures. In Europe in the 20th century, like in the worst century. So the idea that these are sins we are solely guilty of is completely wrong, factually and historically inept. And people don't necessarily want to do the follow-on point, but I will make it deliberate, deliberate. They want the West to be uniquely guilty. They want the West to be uniquely racist, uniquely slave-involved, uniquely colonialist, and everybody else not to be. Why? Because it is a fundamental project that is going on of undermining of the West as a whole. Hit at the very roots, say these people are uniquely evil. The white man invented racism, colonialism, slavery, all the other original sins. And then you can say anything about those people. And you can say, as people do, revolution or overthrow of this system is the only thing that will satisfy it. Well, here's where you come to Nietzsche. As you well know, I mean, the, his essay on the genealogy of morals, as, uh, when I was reading it uh, in the last few years, I, mean, I just kept being stunned by some of the as, as, as always with Nietzsche it's, you have to treat it with gloves because it's so seductive yes because he's so and also so brilliant a writer yes that you can't help but be drawn into it I think he's easily the most formidable opponent of Christianity that's ever yes ever written absolutely it was the one that came closest to bringing me to saying but Rassanti he's insight that that one of the key motivators of human behavior and action is 
hatred of that which is better than us yes. or that looks better. In other words, yes. resentment, mm-hmm. vengeance, bitterness. Mm-hmm. A look around and you see the world. Everything in the world that you see is interpreted as conspiring against yes. you. And if you want to actually see the world that way, you can get up in the morning and mm-hmm. I could, I mean, mm-hmm. I could have gone through my life thinking about every single quote unquote microaggression that ever happened to me. Sure. Every time I was mistaken yes. for straight, every time someone yeah, yeah, yeah. assumed something, it didn't matter to me in the slightest yes. for fuck's sake. Why would anybody yeah. know I was gay before them? Right. I don't know. I don't care. Exactly. And why, well, why would that matter to me anyway? I'm not, my self-esteem t- yes. is not so fucking fragile. Right. Well, that, that someone uses the wrong word and my whole self-esteem is fractured. I mean, there's yes. a level of talk about fragility. Yes. It's the opposite. It is the fragility yeah. of people whose lives have maybe not worked out the way they wanted them to work out, who nonetheless cannot then celebrate the achievements of others, has to attempt mm. to bring them down. And that's, yes. that was also part of what I felt of as, as a kid. These people are trying to kill off mm. and disincentivize the able, the talented, the skillful, the, mm. the, the intelligent. And as if their existence hurts anyone. Mm. Well, Unless they haven't actually contributed in a way that makes all of our lives. Yes. I mean, I am nowhere near as smart as the coders of Silicon Valley. I'm fucking grateful to have an iPhone. Right? Yes. I, I, I'm, why am I hating them? Right. I yeah, don't yeah, this get is, it. Well, I mean, the, the truth of what Nietzsche describes, we can all admit if we want to confess to it in our hearts. When we see a person who's much better looking than us, say, do we say... Wow, that's just fantastic. I'm so glad for that guy. <laughs> or yeah, do we say fuck him? He got some work done, obviously. Yeah. He God, must I, be doing some steroids. I hope he's, I hope he's got a small dick. <laughs> yeah. You know, it, it's uh, or he's I hope he's really stupid. Right. There's all know, sorts yeah. of things we do. Look at the way in which people love seeing beautiful celebrities unhappy. Oh yeah. Why? Because we don't want them to have everything. Why there's a great big building in New York. It's like the tallest damn building in town. It's like 150 floors or something. It's all owned by Russians. And it's the tallest building in town. Every now and then there's this this wonderful property pornography that's published in in one of the papers, which reveals that the the, the residents of this tower are suing the management because the tower sways in the wind. And apparently whenever you use one of the the rubbish chutes, it goes off like a bomb. (laughs) Of course, I love reading these articles. I think fantastic. Yes. Fantastic. I didn't buy one of these $120 million apartments. And said, thank goodness I didn't. <laughs> Otherwise, I'd be swaying up there in the wind. But the point is, is that we are all, if we admit it, motivated or at risk of being motivated by resentment or resentment, which is very close to Remember what, that great what he means. Clive James poem, which was, oh. was titled, oh, yes. The Book of My Enemy Has Been Remaindered. <laughs> yes, I loved Clive. And it's, it's, Did you remember it's, the, the next line? It says, The Book of My Enemy Has Been Remaindered. In vast quantities it has been remaindered, and I am glad. <laughs> like he says, like counterfeit goods. <laughs> I know, and it's so lovely because it's 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 just this beautiful confession, essentially. Yeah. That yeah, and yeah, when I when 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 another Pulitzer Prize goes to another woke mm. mediocrity. Yeah, uh, Clive also said it about J.K. Rowling. There's a very funny late talk of Clive James, who I adored. Uh, he's talk, he did a radio talk about J.K. Rowling's success, and he said, "I would like every other author. I would like." To talk about her book sales 
but I, but if I open my mouth, my ground teeth will start being spat out. It's, of course, it's, it's human. It's, it's human. incredibly human. It's, in, it's, it's a completely human thing. So here's the thing, though, is that we all have a choice in our lives. This is why I write, I write the... I was fascinated. I was thinking about gratitude a lot in recent years for several that's, reasons. That's such a... To my mind, it's the most important insight of your book. Oh, I'm so pleased you Gratitude. Say that. Because, I mean, uh, there were several reasons. One was uh, a couple of years ago, I was reading Dostoevsky and I was reading the brothers Karamazov and I, uh, I came across that very, very disturbing passage where one of the brothers, Ivan, speaks with the devil. And the devil, in passing, says, uh, gratitude isn't a sentiment I'm capable of. It wasn't given to me. I thought only a genius like Dostoevsky could throw away that insight and move on. But but then and and then in the actually well, Roger Scruton I mentioned earlier, one of my mentors really in the last year of his life, which was very tumultuous for reasons I don't need to go into. But and the last thing he wrote as it happened was a diary for the Spectator in which he, I sort of led a campaign to try to save his reputation after he had been subjected to one of these mob attacks for, for made, on made up grounds, almost almost. If, if, if Hanteman had wrestled it round, he would have gone to his grave destroyed, you know. But anyhow, the attack... Tempo, temporarily destroyed. Temporarily destroyed, quite. He would have it's, gone it's to the grave... Not, he would have gone to the grave believing that his reputation had been destroyed. So anyhow, but the people who, who tried to attack him, journalists who lied about him from the magazine The New Statesman, made up quotes from the interview transcript, all of the things you could possibly do of journalistic malpractice, they did to him. And he could have been himself a person of great resentment over this. And to the when when it actually turned around, he said to me at one point, he said, Douglas, we must... We must forgive the, the the young man I won't mention who did this, in order not to be like them and to to manifest a different value. And the last thing he wrote um, in his diary, he, he said, um, "To come to the end of, of life is to realize the purpose of life, and the purpose of life is gratitude." And this this rings this rings a great bell with me, not just because it's the insight of a great and wise friend at the end, which is always worth mulling on but because it seems to me that this is a choice we all have in our lives and and we do all have the choice to say as you know somebody every time somebody says you know are you married and you say yes uh, what's your wife's name you could say my god this is a cis heteronormative patriarchal <laughs> I, 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 would, I would sort of think that situation gosh I pass this very straight this is interesting um, I must be very butch yeah that's I, what I say oh, well, that's uh, so, I feel quite flattered but that's but, because we're self-hating yeah of course but the point is is that we, we, we could we could all in our lives decide to be the people that Nietzsche diagnoses and we're disproportionately likely to be like that if the society tells us that there's a virtue in it if the society says, you know, the person who's suffered the most or can claim to have suffered the most is the one most deserving of the microphone or indeed the megaphone. If if microaggressions, you know, persist as an idea, as if if lived experience as the sole way to under, as if there's any such thing as unlived experience. But anyway, let's put that aside for a moment because idiots stuff doesn't withstand the most basic analysis but let's say that the lived experience you must have you must have had the lived experience for yourself in order to talk about anything if that if that sort of thing persists what it will what it what it does encourage and what it will increasingly encourage is a society in which we say 
it's not only fine to be a person of resentment, but it actually will benefit you because you live in a society of resentment. And the people who spot resentment the most and can accumulate the most win. So that, for instance, I give the example in the book, you can look at a painting and you can say, I wonder whether these pigments were, were, were collected by the artist. I wonder, since they almost certainly weren't, who did the palette putting together of the paints for the artist. I wonder whether that studio assistant had any choice in their career. I wonder whether they were paid a fair wage. I wonder whether they actually ever got any credit for their work. Or you can stand back and see the Madonna of the Rocks of Leonardo. You know, these are two different ways of looking at one canvas. Now, we can look at our entire society like that. Every single one of us on every day has infinite opportunities for resentment. That person's better looking than me. That person's richer than me. That person got riches through means that I didn't have the opportunity to get them through. That person is wittier than me. That person is more, more informed than me. All sorts of things. And, and, and along the way of that, of course, if you don't catch yourself at it, if you're doing it, then among other things, you'll pass over some of the important things like, has that person accrued more than me because I don't mind hitting the alarm and staying in bed? And perhaps that was the person who used to always get up. Perhaps that person worked harder. It, it, you can ignore all those little well, voices. that person that superficially looks so privileged actually has a life of profound mental exactly. illness, might have had a horrible family life. We just don't, we don't know, know the, which is why when people's we say, stories. Ex which is why when we say privilege, we're so damn presumptuous. Yeah. People have no idea what privilege is today, who's privileged. A lot of you will say, well, the sound of your voice, you're privileged. I say, you, nobody knows a damn thing about other people's actual lived experience. And we can't, here's the thing, we can't because every day cannot be occupied and our meaning and purpose and drive in life cannot be occupied by us trying to find the precise exact lived experience of everybody in the universe at that day. So what's the other thing open to us is to say, I'm not going to fall into that. I'm not going to jump into that abyss. I will have to find another way. But here's what I would say is that what impulse what what other impulses are there for us to say no even though all sorts of structures all sorts of class all sorts of cultural identifiers are making this person more powerful than me but why would i want to see that person in a better light why would i want to understand that person in full why would i want to have an understanding of what this person's soul is mm. in, in terms of mm. and seeing that it might not be what it appears on the mm. surface now to my yes. mind that this is and forgive me for saying this, but it, 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 it's an inheritance of the, the Christian idea. Yes, that, I agree. That there are human individuals, that they are sacred, that their souls are unique and complex, that only God knows mm -hmm. their moral status, yes. not you. Yes. And we should do our best for these reasons, because of what Jesus told us, to accept the other. In fact, to go out of our way, mm. and that's that's what makes Christianity particularly radical, to go out of our way to find mm. the very people that we have the most resentment towards mm. and see a reason to love them. Yes. That is this, that is that is the 
the, the Good Samaritan. It's story. one of the most profound, it's perhaps the most profound moral inside of the Christian tradition. And as I see it, one of the great struggles in our age is to find a way to imbue part of that ethic without the founding of it. Well, you know, effectively, uh, it may not be possible. You? It may not be possible. I put it out there as a, an unanswered question. But uh, is it an is it is it a coincidence that the period that we've seen the most aggressive portrayal of people in this terms of ressentiment has simultaneously experienced in America the first serious mm. decline mm. in religious faith and Christianity? That and we've also mm. seen Christianity itself, whether it be in terms of what you point out as woke Episcopalianism in which mm. Christianity has so decided that it's an extraordinary rich yes. history of should theology be should be given up in order to promote Robin DiAngelo. Mm. But also evangelical churches that are essentially at this point political organizations yes, dedicated to the, the, well, the golden calf of Donald J. Trump, yeah. which is, which, you know, I could see coming 20 years ago, mm. 30 years ago, and mm. worried because I didn't think it was really what Christianity was about. It was, it was a conflation of faith with political power. So you see this corruption mm. within religion on both sides. I would, I, would, I would suggest that Pope Francis is not in that collapse. But I mean, you may think, I mean, there are criticisms being made of some things mm. he said, but I don't, I don't think he's given up the Catholic magisterium or its essential independence of these things. Mm. But this is what worries me. It worries. Now, I do think you could make a humanistic case, like understand the, but they well, don't really. They understand the group. The truth is, and the is, person yes. is understood entirely in terms of their membership of, the of group, that group. Which and 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 if the group is oppressed, then it's more desirable to be a member of that group. And there is, is no course, single human nature. That yes. it's all constructed by culture. And that we, by changing the culture, we will change human nature. I mean, this stuff is yeah. it's well, the that, oldest thing in the book. It's, I, I mean, I have to say my, my, my instinct is that you cannot, imp you cannot instill the, the, the doctrine of the sanctity of the individual, the, the equality of all individuals in the eyes of God in a secular context. I think, it's, I think we're trying, but we're seeing the results of the trying. Because because you've missed Augustine's insight that there are two different worlds: the city of God and the city of man, and that in the city of man, people are not equal. I mean, you know, we're 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 all differently capable. Some are very incapable. Some people are supremely capable and unbelievably, enviably so. And are they the same? Yes, in the eyes of God, are they the same in the city of man? No. So what do we do about it? the people who are most visibly allegedly benefiting must be torn down. Now, I mean, I, I make this comment in the book about one of the things you see, because you mentioned earlier about, well, why now? Well, and it's, it's, it's much on my mind. Why now? Like, for instance, there are things that we're discussing now in America and in the West that would have made great sense to have litigated in the 1960s. But they were litigated in the 1960s. And That's they were. the point. And they were. We went over it. There are things that we are talking about now that would have made great sense to have litigated in the mid-19th century. And we did. I'm rather excited. But here again, this is the, this is the thing. I would, with, again, I don't mean John Stewart, but, but 
he said Americans have never had a conversation about race. Oh, <laughs> They've done not nothing true. but nothing have but. a conversation about this. From the right. very get-go, they might have, may not have reached the conclusions that you now reach, yes. but it doesn't mean there hasn't been or that we've never attempted to admit it, to ameliorate yes. the condition of African-Americans. Nothing. Yes. He said at no point in American history have Ameri- white American has, has black white comfort ceded to black need and i'm paraphrasing but it's, of course what was the war untrue. on poverty what was the civil right. rights act what was the what's affirmative action what is what is equity in every single entity we have done everything we could do mm. so and of course that's where crt came up because mm. we had done everything suddenly there was an instant equality well, he, so yes. then they had to say because the salute because the entire system is wicked yes. and we have to get rid of the entire system heather mcdonald said this to me recently and we were discussing this on a program that 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 the, she thought that a lot of this is the response of white america to the fear to the the expectation that after the 1960s everything would equal out and the horror of the realization that it didn't and an un inability an inability to to work out the multi dimensional natures of that challenge and instead the willingness to take on a one mono a mono explanation for everything that being racism and the answers being as as you know i mean the pulling down of of what i described at the beginning of every ladder i mean literally the gifted the gifted students program in new york bang gone randy weingarten the american union of teachers saying that standardized testing is the problem bang gone it's How the are you going to get because up? Because it actually illustrates the problem, <laughs> and and this idea, and this idea that that things that are are perceived to be white include, you know, accuracy, timeliness, discipline, and much more. The, 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 and therefore, testing and testing well, doing well in tests is a white thing. All of these things are the road to hell, and. It has to be identified. Americans in particular, because this is the crucible of these bad ideas. I always say throughout our life, I think America was largely a net importer of bad ideas. And it has become a net exporter of bad ideas in our lifetimes, which for anyone who loves America is a very sad thing to have to admit. But America is now this net exporter of these bad ideas. And and it has to be stopped because it is now got to the stage that it is, as I say in the book, a war on everything. It is a war on every single part of our inheritance. It's a war on our history. And it has got to be pushed back against by the adults. And, and and the adults can be, the adults can be any age. You know, the adult can be the student correcting their tutor, their teacher, their lecturer. The, the adult can be literally the, the, the parent correcting the child. But we have to correct the solely case for the prosecution situation that America in particular has found herself in and try to turn that around. Now, as I say, there are various ways to do that. And one of the most terrifying, uh, because, you know, I say among the many ways out of this, the deep one has to be the re- the changing of the resentment into, into gratitude. That's not straightforward or easy in our own lives, let alone as an entire society, if the entire society has been persuaded that it should be a society based in resentment. But there is, of course, another and very and terrifying insight of Nietzsche's about this, which is which is what, as it were, is the nuclear option to the individual who has become like this, which is to turn around to them and say, you are correct. There is a person who has kept you down. 
there is a person who has held you back. There is a person who has destroyed your life. The person is you. Now, nobody in the world wants to hear that. It is probably the thing in the life you want to hear the least. But it is the thing you need to be told sometimes. Now, in Nietzsche's term, the, 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 the priest must stand over the person and say this. We don't have priests in our society who would be listened to to say this. So anybody available and with the available guts must say this when they see the people of resentment stirring up the pot to make society more resentful. So the, the, one of the other insights of Nietzsche's on this is, is that there is a type of person who, as he says, it's a phrase I live, is, it claims to be motivated by justice, but is actually motiv motivated by revenge. I believe that is one of the most characteristic types in our era. They speak of justice, but they mean revenge. And that what we are going through is a period of vengeance against the West, against white people, it has to be said, against everything that was part of the West. And in that situation, this other insight of his is useful, which is that there is a type of person who is very keen to tear at wounds long healed and then cry about the pain they've suffered. Well, I would submit that much, if not most, of the American public square in particular is dominated by those people who have spotted that, for instance, they can cry about wounds they did not suffer but they do it to people who feel are made to feel as if they are the people who made them suffer, and they're not. As I say in the section on reparations, we're now not even at the stage of being asked for wealth transfer from a group of people who did something wrong to a group of people to whom wrong was done. We're talking in modern America about a wealth transfer from people who resemble people who may have done something wrong in the past to people who may have to people who resemble people to whom a wrong may have been done. How the hell do you do that without tearing your society apart? America tears itself apart about black Americans being expected to show voter ID at the polls. Ask them to provide their DNA to prove that they're not descended from slavers. Show me how that works. In other words, we are Also, a being... majority of black people favor using voter ID at the polls. Right. <laughs> but, you know, but obviously... Nancy Pelosi and co think it's the most racist thing ever. Oh, so course. I say, wait, wait until, wait until they have to ask for the DNA of every black American to try to work out who deserves the pot. When you, when you criticize this, you talk about. I talked about equity and like w this is racial discrimination. Mm -hmm. Let's to quote the one of the biggest advocates of ressentiment: the mm -hmm. only remedy for past discrimination is present discrimination. Yes. An astonishing phrase of Kendi's. Kendi is openly advocating yes. Yes. race discrimination mm -hmm. against white people who did nothing wrong, yeah. who are solely to be targeted because of the color of their skin. Mm. It is the most outright racist position. Yes. It, he also has, in public, said he would like to basically undo the American Constitution, add an amendment that would have an unelected body that would be able to go into anybody's life at any moment and correct with the power of the state any action they deemed, they deemed racist. This man is a he's, he's fated at places like the Atlantic. He's given yes. millions of dollars at yes. Boston University. This is an active, aggressive yes. racist. And I'm afraid that, like others in the sphere, 
not enough people seem to have what I regard as being not particularly courage, just the de- the decency and honesty to call it out. And and I can only assume it's because people fear the consequences. And for some people, there would be consequences to fearing this out. Well, tell me about it. <laughs> exactly, exactly. I mean, you've been through this. I, I, I've managed to skip it by, by being so appalling forever that nobody can pull me down. Right? <laughs> I hope. No, but I mean, I've been thrown out of various institutions as a pariah. Yes, um, but that's because you were in the institutions. Right, no. And that's the dangerous point, as you know. I do. If you if you can find a way to float above or underneath the institutions, you can you can do this. But like, if, if, if the gods of the era are the vengeance gods of D'Angelo and Kendi, and if you don't submit to those gods, bang, you're out, you're gone. So, I mean, I, that's one of the reasons why my self-appointed task is to say things I know that my readers cannot yet say. But that's, for why, instance, that's why you're being read all over well, the world. I hope so. I mean, but, but let but, me ask this, this hmm. question. Has any society in history had a series of quite awful crimes that turned out to have been completely invented by the alleged victim? Yeah. <laughs> in other yeah. words, from Tawana Brawley onwards, we now have an incentive structure yes. for people who want to advance in society, not by anything that they're positively doing, not by their talents or mm. actions, but because they construct a situation in which they are better than anybody's achieved anything, which is a victim. This is the uh, justice mouillée, to uh, use it, it's, yes. <laughs> it's, 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 it's It's the Jackie in Rolling Stone. And yes. the credulousness... Yes. Well, with which the entire elite yeah. greets every single case, of well, this, again, even though I mean, they, they keep showing up to be fake. Yeah, they, they, because, I mean, I mean, it's so revealing, isn't it? It hasn't been <laughs> gone over enough. The justice, it is so revealing that he knew actually the best way to get ahead was to claim that he had been victimized. It is so revealing. Not, I mean, not just of his own, you know, obviously very dim-witted ideas, but it is so revealing of the society. And he was right. He was right. Kamala Harris immediately tweets about the fact that there was a modern-day lynching. Nancy Pelosi's all over. You've got the most powerful people in the land, never mind the entertainment bosses and everyone else. And it's only because a few people say, mm, I don't know that Chicago and mid- <laughs> Midnight is that MAGA country. It seems a bit off to me. Something smells wrong about this story. And, and you know, it's only because of a few policemen who who aren't, who are, are aware that their time is being deliberately race, uh, wasted by a race huckster that, that, this, it, that this impression of America as a country where you can just as, as assault black people and get away with it perpetuated. And so, yes, we live in this society across the West now where where I mean, I've often said that it's that, that that this that that we live in societies with a supply and demand problem vis-a-vis racism. There's a great demand for racists, and thank God, a very small supply. But if the but people need the supply to be bigger, need it to be higher, because then they can claim to be fighting against this, and then. And that we are at the stage where there's almost complete political unanimity that actual racism is a deplorable thing. And the media doesn't entertain it in, in America. If, it, if, if, if it's found and located, it, it, it's chucked out as it is in Britain. It's, it's, it's expelled from the public square. These are the societies we live in. And yet we are told that the societies we live in are different. And as a result, there are people in our societies, and I show this with the stats in the book of the amount of, the number of 
unarmed black men, for instance, that Americans think killed every year by the police, which is just off by orders of magnitude. People have been presented a view of our societies in the West, which is flat out wrong. Last, and, I think last week, a nominee for the DOJ was in front of the, the Congress and was asked a question. She had once said in public that an unarmed black man was killed almost mm. every day in America. Yes. She was asked, do you stand by this? She said it was rhetorical. Yes. A rhetorical effort to expand the number nine to the number 365. Yes. I was going to talk also about just how I want to bring up the question of how ressentiment also makes you miserable. Ah, yeah, yeah. We should definitely do that. Definitely. Well, let's do it. I mean, <laughs> I. You can greet hardship as a challenge to be overcome or as a defining aspect that you have to seek help from, mm. in which you could never yourself do anything about. Mm. That is so disempowering. You can choose to be grateful or to resent. Mm. There, is every, there, there are things in people's lives that everyone, we can all feel resentful about. Yes. There are also things that we also forget to be grateful. That's absolutely. That's provably the case with our brains as well, isn't it? That we, we it's provable that we, 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 we pocket every achieve, every thing that's been good. I mean, literally. I mean, every time there's an iPhone update, we put it in our pocket, and we move on, and we ignore the fact that, for instance, we've got all of music for free in our pockets, and we just get, we say, what, well, what, why isn't it working faster? You know, that's an old Louis C.K. joke exactly. about the dude on the airplane. That's, exactly. That's screaming at his cell phone. And Louis yeah. C.K. is, you're flying through the air <laughs> 3,000 miles an hour. And that <laughs> signal <laughs> and that signal has to go to outer space and come back. Yes. So, But we, we obviously do, we do that with cities, I mean, famous, or countries, even scenery. People who live in very beautiful places get used to them very fast. And so, yes, we, we, we know that we, we pocket things that we've actually liked uh, and have benefited us very, very swiftly. And we see things that are... And I think this particularly with gay people. I've, I've mm. read today that recently that the amount of depression, mental illness mm. among gay kids mm. is much higher. At least they're saying it's much higher mm. than it was 10 years ago. There's a level at which you can't even take yes for an answer. Mm. That you have lived through an astonishing period mm. of progress, toleration, new views, mm. but you feel as oppressed as ever. <laughs> I, I read missives from the Human Rights Committee. We're under unprecedented assault. Well, those are just shakedown operations. Well, obviously yeah. they are. And, but there's, a, there's an epidemic of violence against Black trans women, no yeah, evidence no, there of this is, no. whatsoever. Black trans women are, are, are killed by lovers if they're killed. They're, they're, not, they're not killed by MAGA, you know. Gay people wake up scared to be fired from their jobs today yeah. because they're... This stuff is, is pathological and it's such a shame. There's one thing that happened. That there was in, in June 2015 when the Obergefell decision came down. I happened to be in Provincetown. Hmm. And there was a... There was a uh, spontaneous, people just came to the street and just paraded up the street. Hmm. It was one of the most moving moments of my life. It died down, I went to the gym. The dude behind the counter, a young dude, I just mentioned in passing, isn't it great 
This happened today. He's like, what about trans people? Oh, God. Right. You and know, I said to him, do you have any idea how far we've come? Do you have any mm, idea what we just achieved? Mm, do you have any gratitude to those of us mm, who helped do quite, it? Quite. Or do you not actually express daily contempt That's right. for the people who actually struggled to make this civil yes. rights challenge happen? I, 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 absolutely, I'm so glad you said that. I mean, I, I, as you know, I, I tried to tackle some of that and your work was very useful in that in my book, The Madness of Crowds. And I, I see exactly how that type of person has emerged who believes that the endless acquisition of rights for everybody, including the tiniest minority of a minority of a minority, no one is, the, the, literally the slogans are, no one is free until everybody is free, nobody is equal until everybody's equal. Go, well, at the point at which it's got to be total non-judgmentalism about the double mastectomy of the 16-year-old girl, I don't think we're actually in the rights of a minority of a minority anymore. But let's park that one for a second. There's another important thing to be said about this, which is, well, this is a very unpopular point to make, so let me make it. Yeah, go ahead. You can look at these things and solely say, I am depressed at the difficulty I have in my life. The examples you gave earlier, you can do them on sexuality, you can do them on sex, gender, race, you can do it on anything. Or you can recognize that these are the things that make you and these are things you should have to overcome. Uh, historian David Starkey in the UK some time ago was asked about him, himself. He's a rather flinty character, a uh, sharp-edged character. He also happens to be gay. And he said, this is what made me. I became able to do what I did because I was gay and I had to get through living at that point in a, in a society where that was illegal. And it made me the man I am. Um, I was brought up in no such era, but things still weren't easy. But I would not grouse for a moment. Why? First, because if it had any impact on me, it helped make me the person I am. And secondly, because, and this is such a crucial point for what I'm trying to bring across in the war in the West, everybody can do that. And nobody has time. You know, what was one of the great phrases of our country of birth? Mustn't grumble. Have you heard anyone say that in decades? Mustn't grumble was a kind of post-war phrase. Why? People asked you, how are you today? Things weren't great. They weren't great at all. You know, I mean, I, I say this in the, about the thing of privilege, you know well, you've, you've got white privilege or your ancestors had white privilege. And I so resent this. And I say, speaking for my unknown predecessors, they, they tilled the land on a remote Scottish island for centuries in horrible weather. In more recent memory, the crown came to them twice in the 20th century and asked them to leave their island and go to war and they drowned at sea, each generation. Were they privileged? I owe it to them to say no, and you don't get the right to recast them in that light. You don't have the right to recast all of our history in that light, and you don't have the right to invite people today to moan and grouse forever about themselves, because, among much else, it will simply hold everyone back. A generation that has nixed the CRT or intersexual monster, even if it could be, and of course it's designed never to be solved. But even if you could solve it, so the hell what? What do you get at the end of that? 
Do you solve anything? Is anyone materially better off or spiritually rich, richer or anything like that? No. One of my favorite exercises is the following thought experiment. Imagine if America actually arrived at the past equity situation where black people were overrepresented in the public square on boards, of course, not in certain jobs that people don't want, but in the jobs that people want. Imagine if we were actually in the situation that California was trying to get to where trans people were represented on boards of every company. I said at the time to Joe Rogan, I said, uh, uh, if I was a trans person in California and this new bill came in, I'd have to clear my diary for the 2020s. I'm not <laughs> going to have time to have any nookie or anything like that. I'm not going to have time to hang out down the bars, kind of having to dash from board meeting to board meeting because there aren't enough trans people in California for all the jobs on boards that they've got to do. But anyway, the point is, is, that, is, is that if we got to that stage, do we beat China? Or are we happier? <laughs> are we happier? Does, what is the great thing that happens after we've torn down the West and torn down all the statues and torn down all the heroes and torn down our past and claimed that the, that the present day is this horrible, horrible past? What do we get at the end of it? There is no end to it. No. And that's the point. It's that, at least with Marx, there was a moment where you all, it all happened when the revolution yes. occurred and you all... Yeah. You hung around the morning and wrote poetry in the afternoon and did whatever you'd want to do in the evening and everything was magically produced. This is like Marx without a happy ending. Yes, that's it's, right. It's, it's a yes. constant grinding nihilism yeah. that well, is incredibly depressing and psychologically yeah. damaging to people. Very damaging. It reminds me, it reminds me of the wonderful Tom Wolfe radical chic essay. Remember, many listeners will, will know of uh, the party fundraiser for the Black Panthers at Leonard Bernstein's apartment and one of the great essays, obviously. But at that great moment, you remember when, when the Panthers are being questioned and I think Otto Preminger is there and is, you know, sort of says, but what is your blueprint after, uh, but, uh, after the revolution which you're advocating? What, what, is, what is going to come next? And the Panther keeps dodging the question and eventually says, you can't put a blueprint on the future, man. And Leonard Bernstein leans forward in his chair and says, you mean you're just going to wing it? Well, these people are just going to wing it, I think. Their plan, after everything is pulled down, after the revolution that I describe in the war on the West is accomplished, their plan is to start again. <laughs> With what? Year zero. With what? You know, as as you well know, conservatives are predisposed to venerating the past, and it has its virtues and it has its flaws. The flaws are that you sometimes don't notice things which you could improve upon. But the virtues are that what have what has brought your society to today is of worth because it's brought you to where you are, and where you are is pretty good. And you know, one of the one of the things which I sort of conclude on in all this is, you know, we started off by mentioning the, the ships that went only in one direction out from Europe into the world to find the world. But today we have a different phenomenon, which is the ships coming in. And the ships around the world, they cross the Mediterranean only in one direction. People leaving Africa and the Middle East to try to get into Europe people leaving uh, France to try to get into Britain. You, you do not meet vessels halfway across the Mediterranean of people fleeing Italy to hope to make it to sub-Saharan Africa. You do not meet 
boats in the Channel leaving Dover to try to get to France and from there to the Middle East. People at the southern border in the United States are coming in one direction. They do not meet Texans fleeing to try to make it to Mexico, lovely as Mexico is in parts, or, 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 or to Venezuela. So, so the footfall tells us something. All of the UN reports, all of the international reports on migration worldwide say this country, the United States of America, is by a long shot the one top destination of migrants around the world, fleeing economic deprivation or social unrest and war and much more. The number one destination, what are the other destinations people want to come to? A little bit further down the list is at number two, three, four, and five are Canada, the United Kingdom, and, and other European countries. So what I say from this is, this is suggestive. Nobody is breaking into China. Nobody's busily packing up their things and fleeing to Yemen. They want to come to the West. Why? Clearly, we're doing something good. We're doing something right. The follow-on point is, if we're doing something right now, it must be because we've done something right before. Because we didn't just land here. You know, as I quote at the end of the book, Branch Ricky. Luck is the residue of design. America isn't just lucky because we landed with luck. It's not luck like people are born in certain places. That's the kind of luck. But the republic here is set up, designed to be like this. So the good thing has happened for a reason. In which case, try not to destroy, burn down and tear down the thing that got you to the thing you have today, if the thing you have today is the thing you can call good. Or at least look at the world around you and ask yourself, yes, what's wrong with it? But also what's right with it? Exactly. There's a, there's a lovely Oakshot phrase, there are two phrases. Mm -hmm. One is that the difference between a conservative and someone else is that a conservative, the two, let's say a conservative and liberal comes across Helen of Troy the most beautiful woman in the world with a, a pearl necklace slung around her neck. Mm. And the conservative will say, what a beautiful necklace. It looks so hot. She's so st staggeringly hot. And liberal will say, it's slightly asymmetrical. We need to move it so that it's perfectly balanced. What if it were properly arranged? And at some point you've got to say, yeah, there's a role for both. Mm. That's why the West works. Mm. No one wants to no one wants to shut off self-criticism. No. They just don't want it to be the only thing that we say about ourselves. Exactly. You don't, not the only thing we say, and crucially, not only said by people who hate us. You know, this is, yeah. this is something I learned a long time ago, is that you, and I learned it in my, my life and career as well as in relation to societies, is know the difference between a critic who wants to improve you and an enemy who wants to demoralize you. Yeah. You know, if somebody says... You know, you've got things in your society that, that could do with, with w some work. I think that, that's, that's somebody I'd want to listen to. Like somebody said, look, you, you know, you're- That's what Obama did. Right. Well, again, we're not talking about something that long ago. We're talking about a black democratic mm. two-term president who said exactly these right. things. I know the right doesn't like him, but he sure. did say these so, things. And, but the, and the point is, is that this is a legitimate critic. This is a friend, a critical friend, let's say, as we all have in our lives people who, when they say things to us, we say, I will, I will listen to that person because I know they want me to do well. I know they wish me well. So that's the person I'm going to listen to. Now, the person who came along and said, Douglas, yeah, yes, your writing stinks and your ideas are just terrible 
and you look goddamn awful. What you're happened just like, to what you, What happened Douglas? to you? You know? <laughs> Who hurt you? If they went on and on and on, and your taste's terrible, I hate your shoes, and why do you always dress so badly? If they went on and on and on, I, would, I might come to the conclusion, this is not a person who wishes me well. And if somebody said, you know, there's nothing good about you, I would know that person was not a friend or a critic, but an enemy, somebody who wishes me ill. Well, it's the same with societies. Somebody who says, these are the things you can improve and these are, are achievable aims and these are desirable and you can tighten that up and you can work on that and, and more. That's all stuff that is the is the 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 to and fro of politics and culture and it's all great it's all fine the moment somebody comes at your culture your traditions your society your nation and says you've been evil from the start so evil we're going to rewrite the date you were founded to make you more evil we're going to say that all your ancestors were disgusting we're going to say that all your founding fathers were abhorrent we're going to say that the south and the north sides in the civil war were appalling we're going to take down abraham lincoln just as we've wheeled thomas jefferson out the back door quite literally in the council chamber in new york because jefferson no longer represents our values we're going to we're going to go through every single one of your heroes and tear them down we're going to tear down winston churchill we're going to tear down abraham lincoln we're going to go for a lot of them. We think that you are right now, not only a society that's never done any good, but that's always been wicked, which did things that everybody else did in history, but we'll pretend they didn't. We'll pretend only you did. You invented them. You've always been guilty. You're guilty now. You owe the world. It'd be better if you didn't exist. Is that a friendly critic or an enemy? That's worthy of a Pulitzer Prize. <laughs> that's what it is. Uh, and that's why the culture is so sick. Let's end on a, a couple of notes because I wanted to end on some positive notes. Mm. Gratitude is, is one of them. Mm -hmm. Forgiveness is another. Yeah. Again, this comes deep, deep, deep down in Christianity, but the ability to look at the past, mm. to acknowledge its evil, and not necessarily to grant moral sanction to it, but to at least accept that people in the past are a little strange to us, a little alien to us. Maybe we shouldn't be judging them quite this grotesquely from our state today's standards. Maybe we can be a little bit more generous towards them and see what also good they did. Equally now, our political opponents, we should we can be generous. Hmm. And I think that generosity actually is infectious. If you start being generous to others, there's a slight inclination to be generous back, however hard it is. And generosity hmm. There's, a, there's, there's, a, a, there's yes. also a way in which you can criticize someone, but be generous with things they got right, as well as ruthless with what they got wrong. I agree. I, I, there's a lovely phrase, Harold Pinter's not the most eminently quotable writer, nor was he the most lovable man. But there are occasionally good bits, and there's one that actually Pinter, Pinter wanted to be read at his own funeral, and was, a passage from No Man's Land. So when one of, one of the characters is looking through the photograph, he says, he says, Tender the dead as you yourself would be tendered in what you would regard as your life. I'd build on that and say, be tender to the dead. Why, as he says, as you yourself would be tendered. I say to my readers, I say it in the Madness of Crowds, and I say it in the War in the West, one of the reasons to be forgiving to people in the past is, first of all, because you should realize that, like us, they don't know what's happening as they're going through it. Nobody knew whether the slaves were going to be freed 
Nobody knew whether the Republic was going to hold together. No one knew if the country was going to work. No one knew where they were going. Everybody, of course, since the only thing everyone knows about is the Second World War, everybody knows that they would have been on the side of the anti-Nazis if they'd have been born in Germany. No, they wouldn't. They'd have been on the side of the Nazis. Almost certainly, and as Jordan says, they'd have probably enjoyed it. And nobody knows how... Nobody knew how the war was going to end. Nobody, nobody knows anything as you're going through it. There's a phrase of Milan Kundera that I'm very, very fond of. He says that man walks through a fog and stumbles along a path and creates the path as he goes along it. This isn't a remarkable thing. The remarkable thing is that when man looks back, he sees the path, he sees the man, but he doesn't see the fog. Take the last few years that we've all lived through, you know, one thing after another, every goddamn day, every... And then we have a pandemic, and I said the pandemic for me made me even more sympathetic with people in history because they didn't know a damn thing either. We didn't know whether this was the end. We didn't know what it was. It took a long time to find found any attitude towards it. So, so except that as they're going through it, the great fallacy we have is that people in history knew how history was going to continue, <laughs> and they didn't, and we don't. And we'll be judged in turn for our mistakes, but we would hope that we'd be judged by kindly critics, by people who understand that truth of history. And and so us being kindly towards people in the past and tender towards them is, apart from anything else, a down payment on the hope that our successors will treat us in kind. Douglas Murray, thank you so much for coming. Lovely to meet you. The great virtue of the war on the West, his new book, is that you, you do see the path and you do see the fog. And if you wanted to sort of have a moment in which you can see the last 10 years or so in some kind of perspective, it's really helpful. It made me feel less crazy. It made me feel calmer and more at peace with the world as it is and more energized to engage it. And not depressed at all, because, mm. because the values that I believe in, and, and I think that Douglas does, and that people in the West have fought for and died for, are so eminently worth fighting for. It's, a, yeah. it's an honor to do so. Absolutely. And we should not get down, and we should not get depressed or bitter. Bitter is the last thing we should be. Yeah. We're fucking lucky to be alive right now. Absolutely. Certainly as gay men, we're incredibly lucky. There's no, There's no place... On Earth or in history, we would be better off than now. From that gratitude, we can criticize and we should. We could debate, we could fight, but 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 it's a great it's a great battle, and I'm glad to have Douglas Murray in the fight. And it's wonderful to meet you. Thanks for coming. It's been a great pleasure. Thank you. We have all sorts of great guests coming up. Francis Fukuyama is next. Lots of interesting conversations. If you enjoy this, we give all this out for free on the podcast. But we'd love you to join The Dish. Subscribe to The Weekly Dish. We're on the edge of 20,000 paid subscribers and 110,000 free subscribers. If we could just get a few more of you free loaders to pay up, we would be in great stead. Anyway, we're grateful. Lots of love, and I'll see you all next week. <laughs>